Hi there, my name is Adam Waters and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Don't you guys love watching kids? I love how they resemble their parents. Don't you? Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron. Uh, sometimes play the violin. Um, not sure what it means that they trusted the sermon to the violin player. <laughs> they must be digging deep up. Pastor Adam's out of town this week, so I'm blessed to share the message this morning. Um, I need the Lord's help, though. Let's ask him. Father, you are exceptionally loving beyond all of our imagination and understanding. Um, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, um, you made us alive together with Christ. You sent your son, a savior, to draw us to yourself and to save us and deliver us from our sins. And um, Lord, today we have a difficult message um, and I need your help to make it clear. I pray that you would draw the applications with your Holy Spirit and open up your word and give us the understanding and insights so that um, we can live in the light of your presence, the light of your love, um, bearing your testimony with our children and their children. Um, so I just pray, Lord, now that you'd, you'd bless our time and open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I do love seeing children, and they do resemble their parents, don't they? You can spot different kids by how they look <laughs> and how they act, right? Um, AJ, he's a Paoli. Dane, he's a Lohan. There's, some people would say I'm a Williams, right? <laughs> and uh, we know that our actions somehow have some type of an effect. Um, when you talk to parents and they, you look at their kids, sometimes they're just beaming with joy at their kid. And sometimes they say, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Right? And if you're a parent, you know what it's like when you say, oh, and you realize suddenly that's a reflection of who you are. And you wonder, did I say that? Did I, did I do that? But we realize that our words and our actions have a deep impact on our children. And if we realize that when they grow up, they're going to have a deep impact on their children, and then when their kids grow up, they're going to have a deep impact on their children, somehow the weight grows enormously, and we feel, wow, I'm sort of at this juncture point of a whole generation that's going to 
propagate, right? Geometric growth. <laughs> it's something where, you know, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, that whole thing. I'm a software developer, so I get that, right? But you see it grows very, very quickly. And somehow the, the, the weight of that, when we pull back and we think, we feel we're really inadequate to the task of that. And today we're going to be looking at a story where that uh, transition goes horribly wrong. And it's something that is really a weight because here God had been working to deliver and yet things go wrong. And so um, we're going to try to unpack a little bit of that, a bit of that to understand what it is that went wrong and try to draw some lessons for us to uh, uh, not head in, in, in that direction. Uh, we're going to have to do a little bit of work to unpack it. Um, and I really have three points that I want to sort of settle on as we look to the next generation of how we pass on uh, the things that God has done in our lives to help move that generation in the right direction. The first point is, what we're going to look at is give credit to God for saving and helping us. The second is act based on God's continued presence in our lives. And the third is depend on God's continued grace and deliverance for us and our children. So these are the three things that we're going to look at. And we're going to kind of get at those points by looking at the Gideon narrative and seeing how it, uh, he begins to drift away from some of those things. So first, a, a brief recap on uh, sort of the context that we're in with the story of Gideon. We've been looking at the book of Judges. And you remember that uh, Israel's been going through this cycle, right? God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, and uh, he had uh, given them this land and driven out enemies before them. And uh, that whole generation where that happened, they were serving the Lord. And then another generation comes up that doesn't know the Lord or the things that he did for them, and they begin to worship and serve other gods. And so God gives them over into the hands of their enemy. And then uh, when they're oppressed and afflicted and things begin to go wrong, they turn back to the Lord and they cry out to him. And then God raises up a judge and delivers them, right? And then uh, they experience a little bit of peace, a little bit of prosperity. And then what happens? The same thing happens all over again. And you have this sort of cycle. And so that's what's been going on. And, and the story of Gideon begins to unpack that and sort of give us a real sharp look into the internal workings of that. And in previous stories, you just have sort of stories of some of the deliverances. But in, in Gideon, we really unpack the narrative. And where we're going to be taking it today is actually about halfway point through the generational story of Gideon. I know we're near the end of our series on Gideon. But the next couple of chapters go into what happens with his children, and it's a catastrophe. Um, the next generation, he ends up having 70 sons, one of them, Abimelech, which means my father is king, ends up vying for power and control against his other brothers, and he ends up killing them. Only one escapes, the youngest whose name is Jotham. And then Abimelech himself ends up trying to rabble-rouse and take control of some towns, and then he ends up dying also. So all of Gideon's children, except for one, end up dying. And so we see the end story is very, very similar. Here God has used Gideon and, and raised up a deliverer, and yet things go wrong. So let's take a quick look at the Ark of Gideon, then we're going to sort of look at that critical transition point where things begin to go wrong, and some would say maybe even a little bit earlier. 
Okay. So um, you remember that uh, God had, uh, uh, sorry, the Midianites and Amalekites from the east were oppressing Israel. There's just no uh, grain. They're ravaging the land. They're not leaving any ox, uh, any donkey, any sheep, that sort of thing. And uh, the Israelites are hiding out in various dens and caves up in the mountains that they make. And uh, they cry out to the Lord, and uh, God sends them a prophet, and he says, you know what? I'm the one who delivered you out of Egypt, but you have not obeyed my commands. You've uh, forsaken me. You're serving these other gods, right? And then he comes down, and he raises up Gideon. He's like, go and deliver Israel. (laughs) I'm with you. And uh, Gideon has a couple of different tests that he does, and then he ends up and uh, he goes in the strength that God gives him, and he fights uh, the Midianites, but only after God takes his army and pairs it down to about 300 people. And uh, the, the Midianites are on this, they're, they're routed, and Gideon pursues them, and he ends up uh, capturing their two kings and uh, killing them. And now we come to the point where Israel is feeling their sense of victory and delivery, and they want to act accordingly. So God has given Israel victory through Gideon. How does Gideon respond to that, and what will be the implications for his next generation? So turn with me to Judges 8, 22. Do I keep wavering? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Judges 8, verse 22. Then... The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, We will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So the people want to make him king, and he gives this answer initially that, uh, no, the Lord is king, and then Give me some of this gold, and he ends up making this ephod, and then it causes his whole family to stumble and and to fall into the snare. And then, of course, the effects later on of that with his family 
dying, right? So let's take a look at sort of these elements and what, what begins to go wrong. And the first thing I want to look at is just this initial statement that he has. And the point I want to sort of draw out of this is when God gives us victory, it's critical for us to give credit to God for saving and helping us, right? So take a look at verse uh, 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So they're basically asking him to set up a, a kingly dynasty, right? This actually wasn't something that wasn't envisioned in the law. In Deuteronomy, it, it, it foresaw a period where there was going to be a, 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 a kingship that was developed. So maybe this is that moment, right? Um, but they want not only him to rule over them, but also his son and his son's son. So they're looking for that whole type of succession. And the reason they give for that is you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, is that what had happened? No. God was the one who had delivered them from the hand of Midian, right? And God had gone to great lengths to make sure that Israel couldn't take credit for the victory. Do you remember the whole incident where uh, Midian sounds the trumpet and he gathers all the people of Manasseh and the people of Na uh, Asher and Naphtali, right, and, and Zebulun, and they, you know, they're at this uh, spring of Harad, and the, the, the army of Gideon or of Midian is in the, the Jezreel Valley north of them, right? And, and God says, look, there's too many of you. Too many. There's 32,000. There's too many of you against 135,000 Midianites. And you look and say, it doesn't sound like too many to me. But God says, that's too many. He says that, you know, if, if you go and fight Midian like this, you might think that your own hand saved you. And so he says, anybody who is afraid, go home and 22,000 people leave. And then he says, still too many. And then he has that whole uh, test. I'm going to test them by the water, the way that they drink. Remember, some lap like dogs, some were on their knees out of that. I never knew how that all worked, right? And only 300 people end up remaining. Everyone goes home. So this army of 300 fights against the 135,000 Midianites. And so God was very concerned that he put Gideon and the people in a position where he there was no way that they could give the credit to somebody else. And yet here, you, Gideon, have delivered us from the hand of Midian. It's chilling. I wondered, do we have heroes in our life or people we look up to that we look at and we just think to ourselves, oh, this is, this is the person that is our deliver our savior maybe it's a a pastor or a coach or a, a teacher or, you know or some somebody in government right or maybe it's our you know closer to home a, you know friend that we love or a you know parent or a, or a mentor do we recognize how god has been using people or do we see sort of the source of salvation and deliverance is coming from these people even when it makes clear that is from god now, Gideon doesn't deny it. This is a problem, isn't it? Right? Gideon doesn't say, no, 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 I didn't deliver you. Now, he's going to give a right theological answer here in a second that it was uh, God who's going to rule over them. But he doesn't do anything to dispel this idea that maybe he had a part of it. Perhaps Gideon 
thinks he did have a little bit of a part, right? Because he had pursued the Midianite army a little past his commission, it looks like. There was an initial route, right? And then he ends up pursuing the Midianite kings after the army is largely killed well into what would be nowadays modern Jordan. The city of Karkor, it's like 80 miles past the border of the Jordan River. So this is way past it. So it looks like maybe he was beginning to take some matters into his own hands as well. Um, but he certainly doesn't deny here that he had a, a role in it. So I'm wondering for us, when God does something great for us, are we likely to take the credit? Do we think it was because of our own skills and talents and abilities that these deliverances happened? Or are we willing to give that credit to God? Um, I had a, a, an interesting uh, conversation with somebody. <laughs> so uh, background, I was, am, <laughs> a software developer by trade. Um, had a small company with my brothers for a number of years. Uh, and as part of that, you are developing software and you have to uh, make it work, right? And uh, I was at Brewpoint and there was a fellow there who was uh, a, a working at DePaul and he was a, you know, studying computer science. And I just, you know, I, I, I got to talking with him and I said, hey, if you ever wanted to get together and talk software, this is something that I do. Uh, and I would just love to sort of you know, help, you know, guide you through some of what that development looks like. And so he took me up on the deal. And so we started getting together, and uh, he is a wonderful dear friend now. Uh, but in some of those early conversations, we were talking about some of the technical aspects of how you develop software. And, uh, of course, in the midst of that comes the, you know, the issue of how you deal with particular uh, problems with the software. And so uh, I was relaying one particular story to him that happened to me. And the story went like this. Uh, I was needing to solve this particular um, uh, software issue. <laughs> Some of you are like, what, what is this coming for? This is like a sermon. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So we were needing to debug this particular software issue. And the issue was this. Um, you know web browsers, they load their web page, right? Well, the web page won't load unless you were circling the mouse. It was the craziest problem I've ever seen in my life. And we couldn't ship our software product as long as that was happening, right? It was just a complete showstopper. <laughs> the only problem was is I could not, for the life of me, replicate that particular bug. And if you can't replicate it, you can't solve it as a developer, right? And so I'm relaying this to this, to this friend, and he's, he's tracking along with it. Yes, this is important, so how did you, you know, solve it? I, and I, I constructed this elaborate scheme to try to solve it. There was something like 17 steps, but, you know, sometimes the, the steps would vary a little bit. And I was just like, what is the formula to get this? And it took weeks and weeks, and I couldn't get this issue. And it was killing me. We can't ship the product. I can't replicate the bug. So one day I was sitting in front of my computer, and I was just... I had just turned it on. I was just looking at it, just loaded up the software. I hadn't done anything, hadn't touched it at all. And, Lord, I need your help with this issue. I can't solve it. And so I was like, I'm going to go make some angel food cake. <laughs> I, I, like, that's a recipe for success of debugging, making angel food cake. I, angel food cake, yes. So I, I went and I went to the kitchen and I, I made some angel food cake. It was good. Um, and, <laughs> and I came back 
and the problem was there. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, I haven't done one of those 17 steps, none of the things I had done. And in a flash, I understood it was a time-based bug. Some of you are like, how could you possibly get that? I don't know, okay? But I do know because I just asked the Lord to help, right? And, and this clarity of me trying to figure out the steps is actually the thing that was causing me not to get it. And so simply asking the Lord and then going and making the cake was precisely the ingredient I needed to not do anything that would make it a time-based bug. So within a short amount of time, I had narrowed it from 30 minutes down to 15, down to, it was, if you had waited exactly one minute before this uh, software loaded, this problem would happen and not a minute, not a second less. And so I told my brother, he had a fix within a day or two, we were able to ship the product. Okay, so long story. I'm telling my friend this, and keep in mind, I'm, we're talking about software development here, and I'm supposed to have good answers on how we go about debugging, and, 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 and it's these sorts of steps and these sorts of reasons, not to say that those aren't a play. But I had to be honest with him that this was the story of what happened, right? And the story stuck in this friend's mind because it was such an outrageous story for how to approach software development. You mean to tell me that you asked God to help you and he helped you in the midst of this? That's, yeah, that's how it went down. I was making cake, you know? <laughs> um, and so this is a case where God had done something for me and in the sphere of sort of my relationship with others and just doing a professional thing, I had to share what God had done because that was the way he had done it. There was no other way because there was that active dependence. It would have been uh, convenient perhaps to say, oh, I realized it was a time-based bug and sort of you know gloss over the details, but it flowed very, very naturally. And, and over time, we ended up having a number of very, very deep and rich conversations about the Lord, and he's a good friend to this day. How are we depending upon the Lord, and when the Lord comes through for us, how are we acknowledging him and giving him credit for what he, he has done for us? In this particular case, Gideon perhaps begins to not always give God the full credit. And certainly the people of Israel are looking wrong. So this is the first thing that begins to, 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 to go wrong. In our families, in our homes, are we talking about the way God has delivered us? Are we sharing that with our children? Are we showing active stories of answers to prayer? And, and, uh, and are we integrating God into our the things that we do in such a way that we're able to have that ready kind of a testimony. How about in our professional spheres? That's a little bit harder, right? <laughs> God help me. Um, how about in our schools with our homework and our sports, right? Uh, so let's just go down the line and canvas those things. How are we giving credit to God for saving and helping us? Okay, the narrative goes on. So Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. This is verse 23. The Lord shall rule over you. So he has a right theological answer. The question is, does that theological answer line up with his actions and what he actually thinks? thinks. And so that's going to bring us to our second point, that it's critical for us 
to act based on God's continued presence in our lives. Because what we're going to see here in a second is that Gideon is probably being motivated from some things. We can't say for sure, but he's probably being motivated from some things that uh, don't have the presence of God first in his view. Okay, And if he begins to be motivated by those other things, then the actions that flow out of that are going to cause him to do things that uh, begin to, to to, to go off, okay? So in the second section, the critical point is act based on God's continued presence in our lives. Okay, so the people want to make him king. You have one king. He's the Lord, right? Good theological answer. But then he sort of goes and he's like, well, you know what? Uh, I actually do have a request here, verse 24. I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites, right? So they uh, defeated this army. There's all sorts of spoils left over. Everybody takes a little bit of those spoils, and Gideon now requests a piece of that. And they're good with this. The people said, verse 25, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,000 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pennants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. So this is quite a pull. To give you some sense of it, 1,700 shekels is about 43 pounds worth of gold. That's a lot of gold. The current trading rate is just a little bit north of $1,700 per ounce of gold, okay? So if we have 43 pounds of gold, we're talking a pull here of north of a million dollars, right? And that's in modern-day currency, not back-adjusted for inflation, <laughs> right? Uh, it's worth a lot more in terms of buying power. Uh, if you read later on in the book of, uh, of, of Judges, you'll see people being hired out for various small amounts of money. One person's wage, which we'll see uh, here in a little bit, is, you know, 10 pieces of silver for like an entire year's worth of, of, of wages. So when we're talking about this amount of gold, this is a huge amount of gold that he's come that has come in. And this is in addition to all the other stuff that he has, you know, the pennants, the little, you know, crescents around the camel's necks, all that. So what, what does he, what does he uh, uh, do with all of this? Well, he takes these pieces of gold. In verse 27, he made it into an ephod and placed it in the city Ophrah. So what is it that he did? What's, what's this ephod thing? <laughs> well, an ephod was something that was used uh, in priestly uh, rituals. God actually commanded uh, Israel back in Exodus 28 to make an ephod. Uh, and he, it was to be worn by Aaron, the high priest. And the reason God said for them to make the ephod was to consecrate Aaron in that ministry in order that he would be able to minister to him. So an ephod is something that's served in some kind of a priestly role. Later on, uh, we see David uses, King David, so later on in Israel's history after this, King David uses an ephod to inquire of God. So it's something that sort of was served in, 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 in a priestly capacity, but somehow seems took on this idea of becoming maybe a conduit for communicating with God. So this is what he chooses to do with all of that gold. 
Now here's where we're going to have to sort of do a little bit of work to unpack maybe what's happening here. We can't really come and say, why did he do it? But we can come up with a couple of reasons, potentially eliminate some, and certainly going through the exercise of why he did it will give us a little bit of room to reflect if, after God delivers us, we're inclined to do sorts of similar things, okay? So we'll just take a quick journey here uh, on some of his possible motives. And I have about... Uh, Ten of no, just kidding. <laughs> I think I have about five or so. So, what 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 could be the first most? So let's just take an easy one. What's something that commonly motivates people? Money, right? So let's say he he wanted to make money off of this, right? In some strange, twisted way, maybe he wanted to make more money than the million he had just pulled in, right? Maybe he wanted to set up some type of a of a of a priesthood, right? You know, you think, oh, let's set up a priesthood. All the people of Israel are going to come. You can turn this into a money-making machine, right? And and I'm going to make more money than the money. I already made. Um, I don't think that this is likely for reasons we'll articulate in a second or here, but let's take a pause and ask, when God delivers us, do we begin to take our eyes off of God and his deliverance of us and the presence that brought that deliverance? And we begin to place it more on the thing itself, in this case, the, the, the money, right? Are we beginning to sort of be swayed and controlled by money in our decision-making in our families and our businesses? It's a worthwhile question, isn't it? Because if the money is the controlling factor, we might begin to sort of drift and take our eyes away from God, who is the one who brought that victory, and we can begin to reap some of the consequences that pass on to that next generation, perhaps then they'll be controlled by money and then the subsequent generations, et cetera, et cetera, and now you fall right back into that trap. So are we controlled by money in our uh, decision-making and our motivations? It doesn't seem like that's what's going on here with Gideon. Um, here's why I think that. Uh, priests didn't necessarily make a lot of money, right? Um, if you look later in the book in Judges uh, 17, 10, there's a priest that's hired for 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and maintenance. <laughs> so that's what a priest is going to pull in. Gideon has just received a fortune, and all of a sudden, he's going to take that money and fuse it into an ephod and take this liquid gold. Liquid means you can spend it freely, right? He's going to take this liquid asset and suddenly convert it into this monolithic thing that can't be utilized. If money's his motivation, it doesn't seem like it's a very good way of, of doing it. Much better to use the money in a sort of free form and get businesses and entrepreneurial things going. Second of all, Gideon is already before this kind of well-to-do. I, I know that it, it, you know, Israel's in a difficult time here, but remember, the Midianites had ravaged the land, and if you look, you'll see that Gideon, he's, although he gives the words and the appearance, oh, you know, I'm the least of the families, you'll actually see that his family is somewhat well-to-do. For example, he, 10 of his servants help him pull down the, 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 the altar to Baal, right? He's got 10 servants, uh, and one of the things he is supposed to sacrifice is a bull that he had in a time, of course, when Israel is, there aren't any of those around. So he's probably already got some means, and now he has a lot more means. So I don't think money is it. What about this? What about fame? 
maybe he wanted to make a name for himself, right? Maybe he, he, he sees this as a chance, I'm going to make this sort of a, a monument. And it could go one of two ways. Maybe he wants to somehow acknowledge the thing that God had done for him, right, by this this, this ephod, a representation of, you know, God's presence or something. Or perhaps he wants to make this sort of this, this thing that's, you know, attributes it to him. Um, it doesn't seem likely, but it's worth asking the question, when God delivers us, do we use that as an opportunity for our own recognition and name? Do we begin to take the thing that God has done for us and say, you know what, I'm that's pretty, pretty good here. You know, I'm not such a bad software developer. I fixed this bug. <laughs> you know, and, and you begin to go down that road of taking credit for things. Do we take credit for the way that God has blessed our families, our children, um, the gifts that he's given us uh, with any of a number of different things? Do we take credit for the success in business, right? So it's worth asking, um, if fame was motivating Gideon, what about us? It doesn't seem likely because, again, he's already well known throughout Israel, right? Um, it's not just because of this battle. He's already comes from sort of a prominent place. First off, his family's a little bit prominent. Again, his words are, I'm the least of the families, of, you know, my father's the least of the clans and the tribe of Manasseh, right? And I'm the least in my family. But the reality is, is, is that Gideon sometimes tends to understate his cases, right? If you remember the whole incident where his father, uh, uh, he pulled down his father's altar with, with Joash, his whole father, his father uh, was like, uh, the people of the town came against him and they were like, you know, we're going to kill this guy. And, and basically his dad is like, no, you're not. In fact, anybody who touches him out of all the people in the town is going to die. So it seems like his family actually had a little bit of standing and a little bit of weight. Then when he goes to fight the Gideonites, what does he do? He blows the trumpet throughout all the hill country of, you know, and the people of Manasseh. So they, they know him. They're not some stranger that he ends up following. And then when he confronts the Gideonites, or the, sorry, the Midianites, what, what, you know, there's that whole dream. And the, you know, some of the Midianites know him by name, too. Remember the whole dream he had, the Midianites had about the, the barley loaf, and they're like, surely this is Gideon, son of, you know, the sort of Gideon, son of Joash. And so he's known even among the enemy, right? And now the people want to come and make him king. So he's already got the fame. He's already got the recognition. If he's looking to somehow set up some type of a, you know, a monument to capitalize on that more, what would that serve? Well, you could say, well, maybe it was an altar to God. Boom. Potentially, except that earlier when uh, he, God had done something spectacular, he actually built a stone altar. He doesn't need to build an ephod in order to do it. So it doesn't seem like fame is, is, is what's, what's going on here. Um, and we could, you know, along with that, say, well, perhaps it's, it's you know, a memorial or something like that. Uh, but it seems similar for the reason. So let's look at the next one. What about, maybe he did it, and this is a little bit more potentially close to home, fear. You say, well, why fear? That seems like very, very strange. It seems like he's just on the heels of the height of his success. It doesn't seem like he'd be doing it. The issue here, though, is, is that something happened right before the people wanted him to become king that I think may have rattled him a little bit. When he comes back and he has the Midianite kings in his hand, he asks them a question, and he says, what kind of men were those that you killed on, you know, up on Mount Tabor? 
And they said, it's men just like you, each one having a kingly appearance. And he realizes, those were my brothers. Okay? It's so easy for us to gloss through this story and think of him as being unflappable in the face of this difficulty. But here Gideon, with this incident, has just found out that his whole family has been killed. Not his parents, but his, but his brothers. That has to weigh on him. Put yourself in that situation. You've had this incredible victory that's been compressed, and all of a sudden you find out that something very costly and very dramatic has happened to your family. And I think that this goes to partly the concern and the core of Gideon. Um, if you look back when we first meet Gideon, he asks this question. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and the angel of the Lord says, you know, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And what's his immediate question? If the Lord is with us, so he's got not just himself in mind, but the larger picture of his people, the, the larger narrative. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? He's seated by this deep sense of, is God with us? And I think it leads to this mentality of always needing to check in on this. This passage, this story is marked by so many times when Gideon is testing God, right? It's not just once. If God is with us, how come all these things have happened? Well, no, I'm going to be with you. And then, uh, he, you know, in, that, in that, that same passage, he goes on to, you know, question a little bit more. Uh, how do I know God is going to deliver Right? And then when it comes time later on with the whole fleece thing, it's not a matter of whether uh, God is present. It's a matter of whether God's going to follow through on his word. Twice the issue with the fleece. Is God going to do what he says? Right? And then God comes along later at the battle with the Midianites, and, and what does he say? You know, if you're still afraid, go down and I'll give you, you know, and then you'll hear something that will encourage you, right? So the story of Gideon is marked by so many tests that are looking to see, is God a present reality in his life, and will he be true to his word? Not once, not twice. This story begins to sort of bookend how it began. And so I think the issue with his brothers may have weighed very, very heavily on him. Sure, he had seen these victory, but something had gone catastrophically wrong in the midst of this. That's a challenging question. How would we act if we were in a similar situation, right? Let's say that we know God is with us and we see his presence at work in our lives and we see answers to prayer and we see faithfulness and then something goes critically wrong for us. What's our instinct? If God is with us, why would this have happened to me? That's one of them, isn't it? Right? Or maybe God knows about it, but maybe he's not loving or he's not good or you know, or his character. Maybe he's not wise. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Or maybe he's not powerful enough. But we begin to question the character of God, don't we? It's an easy thing to do. Gideon had been affirmed by God so many times, but he still has this deep-seated weakness in him that questions, if God is with us, why do these terrible things happen? How could the ephod help with that? Well, if an ephod is a conduit to God, and something that enables you to communicate, it's a way, perhaps, that he could try to gain the ongoing 
presence of God in his life as a means of communicating. Maybe he can make this priestly thing so that he can have God's ongoing fellowship in his life and direction. If priests were inquiring of God, maybe he could continue to inquire it, and therefore bad things wouldn't happen. So maybe this is an attempt to secure for himself uh, uh, God's continued deliverance and providence as a way of addressing his underlying fear. We also have things that we're afraid of. What do we rest in? Do we try to make things that somehow give us a, more of a sense of God's security in our lives in an attempt to try to address some of our concerns about whether or not he'll be there? Maybe there's certain uh, rites or rituals we go through that, oh, if I do these things, then God will help me or, or favor me, or now God is with us. Or do we rest simply on the promise that God is with us? You know, Jesus said, I'm with you always. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Is that enough? God had already told Gideon, I'm going to be with you. And now he's, maybe he's shaken by these realities and trying to do something to secure that. Do we rest in God's presence in our lives, or do we try to do something motivated by fear to add to what God has already said? Okay, final, final reason. Perhaps he did it for control. All right, now this is a, a dicey one, and this is probably closer to what is actually going on here. What do you mean by control? Well, to exert influence over people, either through authority or religious influence, right? This is a possibility because it seems like Gideon has already begun to go down this road of acting like a king. Now, I know he says, I'm not going to rule over you if one ruler, right? But again, Gideon oftentimes will state things in a way that doesn't truly represent the reality of what he's bringing to the table. Remember after he has the whole route and then the Ephraimites come and he's, <laughs> they, they confront him, why didn't you invite us to the battle? And he goes, what did I do in comparison to you? You got these people. Well, come on. Gideon has sort of got the whole, you know, battle going under God's deliverance. He had done a lot in comparison, yet he's giving the credit to other people. So sometimes Gideon says things that don't always uh, line up with, with what's actually happening. So although he says the Lord is king, it may be the answer, but he may be motivated by something else. Okay, so why does it seem like perhaps he's uh, 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 maybe appealing to this ephod as, as a means of control? Israel has been in this cycle, right? Gideon knows Israel's been in this cycle. Where is the God of our fathers and the things that we heard about? And he knows that when God is present that there's deliverance. He's deeply concerned about the national state of Israel, right? Because it's, if God is with you, if God is with us, he's got the larger picture of Israel in view. And because of that, I have to think he's probably thinking, how do I secure long-term deliverance for my children and their children and their children, right? And if he has an ephod, of course, he can be in the position of interfacing with God and the people. God gives the rules. God is king, after all. But now I get to broker that. It's not the same thing as being a king, but it can easily be put in that position where you're beginning to interpret what that rule is on behalf of God. You put yourself up as the conduit between others and God. Now you can begin to mediate out mediate God's rule out to other people. In addition, it already seems like he's been taking up this mantle of rule. The way that he deals with the people of Sukkah, the way that he acquires all this gold, he seems like he's acting with a king. But I think probably the most telling thing is what happens with his, the next generation. 
we talked earlier how kids are like their parents, right? Well, what happens in the next generation? His family actually becomes a little kind of a dynasty, right? And uh, he names one of his kids Abimelech, my father is king. That's his name for his child. So you can see what his thinking is, my father is king. And then second of all, his 70 brothers end up in sort of a oligarchy type of rule over the surrounding towns and villages. And so Abimelech's whole platform, he goes to the people later on of Shechem and he's like, look, is it better for you to have one person rule over you or 70? So Abimelech, this my father as king, says, would you rather have me or would you rather have the 70? So it seems like all of Gideon's children are already in a position where they're exercising power or influence. So it seems like perhaps Gideon, while saying my father, is, or I, you know, God is the one who's ruling over us, is potentially actually already seeing himself in somewhat of that role. Okay. We don't know for sure, do we? But do we want to put ourselves in the position of mediating between God and other people as a way of gaining control and influence? That's a really tough one, isn't it? Because it's a very slippery slope. We see things that we don't like and we feel compelled to do something about it, injustices, and we want to somehow take a stand for it, right? And rather than counting on the work of God, we begin to sort of broker it, and then it's a slippery slope. God says this, God says this. Your priests all throughout the Old Testament where they're interpreting things for God that God didn't say, right? Do we use God's deliverance as a means of controlling the lives of other people to get the things that we want? And does that propagate to our children? So we have a couple of different reasons we don't know exactly, but it seems like Gideon's answer, if he's being motivated by this high view of God as king, there's actually something else going on in his heart. And we need to ask the same. Are we controlled by money? Are we controlled by fame? Are we controlled by the, you know, trying to make some monument or pride for ourselves? Are we controlled by fear? Are we controlled by a desire for control? When God delivers us, do we take the things that he's given us and somehow turn them in? And when we do that, does the next generation implicitly pick up on those actions and attitudes that we have and begin to mimic them so that they drift away from the God who had given us that deliverer in the first place? What do we do with all of this? Well, what ends up happening? The very end, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city. That's where it all began in Oprah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. What does that mean? It means that they began to worship and serve this thing, and their allegiance to God was usurped by this, so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. It became a big snare, didn't it? His family ends up being destroyed. So we're faced with a difficult story here because we've zoomed in, and God has given deliverance to Israel, through Midian, and it seems like just now on the heels of victory, there is this chance, and yet it goes wrong again. What do we do with that? How can we, in a sense, secure <laughs> long-term uh, blessings and deliverance for us and our families, right? And I think the answer to judges is, is that if it's in our court, we're in big trouble. The witness of judges is that things are always going wrong with 
people, when they're involved in God acting, yes, the people have a responsibility, but so often the people end up getting in the way. So I think the third point is, for us and our families, we need to depend on God's continued grace and deliverance for us and our children, right? Who was the one who initiated the deliverance for Gideon and his family? It was God. Did Gideon do anything special to get that? No. God saw the situations people were in, and he stepped in and did something. When God delivers us, do we begin to look and sort of say, yeah, God delivers me, but I'm a little bit better than the next person, right? And when we do that, what happens is we can begin to look at our children or our children's children who are struggling, and we say, yeah, but, you know, God's going to have to do an awful lot of work in them. And what we do is we short-circuit the fact that we were exactly the same way. There's nothing special about Gideon. There's nothing special about any of the other judges. It's deeply flawed people. It's a horrific book. You can read later on Samson, all sorts of troubles. Right? There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the refrain of the book. So how can they actually realize the blessing that God had given them? They need God to do something for them. And if God did something for them that they didn't deserve, that God freely chose to give, maybe he could do it for them and for their children. And their children's children. Israel does need a king, and they do need a priest, but not one that depends on humans. And so it is with us, right? And how has God done that? He's given us Jesus, who is our king and our priest. Do we depend on the grace God has shown us in Jesus, who died on our behalf when we were still sinners and we were enemies and reconciled us to God through the death of his son, right? You guys know Ephesians uh, 2, right? It goes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's us. But... God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in order that in Christ Jesus in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are heirs of God's grace and have been delivered because of what he did, not because of what we did. We're just like the Israelites here. We don't look at Gideon and say, how could you make an ephod like that? Well, we're inclined to do things that are like that all the time. Instead, we look and we say, God did something special for him, and yes, things went wrong again and again and again, but God came through again and again and again. And if God came through again and again, there's hope not only for us, but for our children and their children. And that's got to be our anchor. It seems like with Gideon, the story, where we long to somehow come up with some type of a formula. Worship God more, serve him more, somehow secure, but it seems like every attempt goes wrong. 
what's the one strand that keeps Israel delivered? It's God, isn't it? And if it's God who did it for them and God who has done it for us, it will be God that does it for our children. So we need to depend on God's continued grace and deliverance for us and our children. That's hard, isn't it? How do we do that? I think for our part, we simply, point one, we acknowledge God with our words. Two, we depend on his presence in our lives. And then there's that deep-seated belief that God can actually do something and is willing and ready to do it. And we bring and we rest in his grace again and again and again with the next generation. Are you guys depending upon God's grace in your homes? with your husbands, your wives, your families, your children, in your workplace? Are you looking at the landscape of the larger things that are happening in our community, in our world, and saying maybe God can do something great because of who he is? And I'm where I am because of what God has done, not anything I've done. And out of that same sense of grace, he can do it again. It's a challenging thing, isn't it? Our tendency when we're on the heels of victory is to somehow see ourselves as having a little bit of standing and to try to control and manage the situation so we can uh, uh, have what we want. We need God to do something more. Lord, it's a weighty message, and um, we do need you to do something that we can't do. And when we're in a situation... So often what we see in our families, it's the needs that we have and the stark contrast and the desperation of those needs that lead us to the place where we cry out to you, just like Israel did, and we say you've got to do something, and you're willing and ready to listen again. I want to ask, Lord, that when you give us victory, that you would help us to remember you. And I pray that you'd let us testify to our children of that. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to hold fast to your ongoing presence, not replacing you with uh, some other object of affection, because that's really what goes wrong in Israel, or they lose sight of you. And I pray, Lord, that you, out of a sense of your character, that you give us a, a deep desire to see our children, our children's children walk, knowing that same deliverance, not, not, you know, trying to make it in a way that presents it, but allowing you to do that work in their lives, trusting you to save them the same way that you have done to us. And I pray that in all of this, Lord, you'd, you'd really raise your name high so that we'd have a very Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.